Man, it's been it's been a while since we've recorded. I'm on. We are back. Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. I want to thank Jersey Brew Theology. They have been publishing some amazing content the last few weeks. So go back and listen to them. We did Catherine Keller for two weeks, and then Women in Ministry. And it was it was a great, it was a great panel. So thank you, Jersey Brew Theology, for those episodes uh, tonight. We are with Ved Pinanda. He is Distinguished University Professor and Director of the Ved Nod Center for International and Comparative Law at the University of Denver here, the Stern College of Law. This man has received honorary doctorates of law from multiple countries, holds many leadership positions in the global international law community. Ved has served as U.S. Delegate to the World Federation of the United Nations Association in Geneva and on the Governing Council of the UN Association of the U.S. of A., He's received numerous national and international awards. Vet has authored and co-authored 24 books and many more. Other chapters along with being a monthly contributor to our very own Denver Post. And uh, right here in the Mile High City. So read the Denver Post, people. The newspaper is still alive. It's and, every uh, last Sunday. Last Sunday of every... Okay. Column. And let, yeah. let's, just, let's just say that... Uh, it's it's beyond an honor yes, to have you here. Absolutely. And, that, and those were the Cliff Notes version of this man's CV. Uh, so uh, what you do in the world, what you do in Denver, um, I'm I'm blown away, and I appreciate the fact that Thank you're you. here with us tonight. Uh, so Ved talked to us last week, the Denver Brew Theology community at Zuni uh, Brewing, and uh, he talked about the spirit of Hinduism and its perspective on human rights. And uh, essentially that every human being has these unalienable rights, and we'll get into that, and how Hinduism has, has been speaking about that fact and that truth for thousands of years. Um, so we will, uh, we're going to get to Hinduism. We're going to talk a lot about Hinduism. We're going to get to human rights. And before we do that, uh, I would just, I'd love for you to share a little bit, if you can, uh, just about your childhood story, because I, I find that, that piece to be extremely fascinating. Uh, and when, when I read that in the Denver Post a few weeks ago, uh, I was again blown away again by the kind of human being that you have become based on that story, and that that's held a huge influence in your life as you've moved forward. Yep. Actually, I was uh, one of the millions who, at the time of the partition of India into India and Pakistan, had to leave their own place and move to the other country because I was born in what's now Pakistan, and uh, then after. The partition issue came up. August rolled around. This was the 15th of August that the country became independent. And before that, Hindu-Muslim riots had begun. Where I lived, that is um, um, in Pakistan, Gujranwala, it's very close to a major city in Pakistan, Lahore. And uh, it was primarily 70-80% Muslims and about 20% Hindus. And uh, being a Hindu, uh, we knew that there might be some difficulty, but uh, we decided to stay there. And uh, then August, as I said, rolled around. And at that time, what happened is that um, uh, Muslims, they were burning uh, the houses, people were being killed. And then my dad, along with my other siblings, left in order to move to what's now East Punjab, and that was um, in India, and in order to find a place for us to stay. And my mom and I, we were simply there, the two of us. And uh, um, 
I remember standing on the roof of my house and very little, young, and all around me houses were burning. And uh, then we had not heard from our dad, my dad, um, but the day about 13th or 14th of August, before independence, a Muslim friend who lived very close to us came to our house, knocked at the door. My mom opened the door and uh, he said, because we knew him, he said, I need to tell you that I have heard that tonight they are going to burn your house and so you better leave. And we were afraid. My mom said uh, all the trains going to East Punjab are being cut. They stopped the trains, massacre people, and so we did not know what to do. So we went the other way, and that was the way to go to Kashmir. And on the way, um, a small station where we had to change the trains, uh, my mother, obviously I was very little, so she had to take care of me. And so all that she did was she took some jewelry and uh, some precious things, whatever she had, in a small attache, and then me and the clothes that we were wearing. And at that station, um, at night, a bomb was um, uh, hurled. And uh, we had to leave where we were sitting in a bench. And at that point, she had either to take care of me or that attache. And obviously, there was no choice. So by the time we went to Jammu, that's part of Kashmir, we had nothing but the clothes that we were wearing. And um, to cut it short, we were there for a few months. And then as refugees, we uh, walked back to India. There were hundreds of miles. And uh, I was little, so it took a long time to walk back. And we were along with uh, thousands of other people who were walking. And that was the setting, because in that one, a million people had died. And uh, during that time, we were trying to reach um, we had some relatives in uh, that part of the country, Punjab, in India. And we tried to reach them, but we couldn't. And uh, they had uh, felt that we were dead. So they had done all those Hindu riots for dead people, and finally we reached. So it was a setting that was pretty hard. But the nicest thing about all that was that my parents, after I got back with them, um, simply mentioned to us that, look, you need to remember that it was a Muslim who saved your life. And so we had absolutely no hard feelings about Muslims. And uh, throughout my life, from very childhood, they kept telling me that uh, these are all these different religions. And there is one thing in common, that they all want people to live peacefully. They all want people to grow. They all want people to be spiritually good. So there is no difference between religions in that sense. They are all good. And uh, so fortunately, um, I had not an iota of uh, feeling bad about it. And then throughout my life, I came here to study. I went to the University of Chicago, then Northwestern, then Yale, and after Yale Law School uh, at the United Nations. Uh, but in all this kind of uh, time, I had uh, wonderful Muslim friends, and so that is the little story about my childhood. Thank you very much. Yeah, that, that's 
one of those moments in life where you can look back and it could have it could have turned you for the worse, right? And yet um, here you are today with open arms, uh, with a religion that also has open arms for all people, and you see the divine in others, uh, which is a beautiful thing. So, uh, and if if you also right now you're listening to Ved, kind voice, also kind eyes too. You can't see <laughs> yes. that, yeah. Um, so. Um, you know, we're going to talk about a religion, which is the third <laughs> largest religion and the oldest religion in the world with, what is it, 1.1 billion people and 15% of of the world's population. And yet, in America, it's it's very small. Very tiny. Yeah. It's small. So uh, here you have... Two and a half or three million people. Okay. You know, and, and us around the table here, I mean, I've we have uh, Judeo-Christian backgrounds here. Uh, now we're just a bunch of mutts in the Western world. <laughs> uh, but from a, you know, a... a a very monotheistic heritage, not grasping the underst- like the Eastern world. Uh, Hinduism is it's it's pantheistic, but it's also polytheistic. And so, just try to get our 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 minds and the listeners right now wrapped around Hinduism and that how 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 is that framed for you by being polytheistic and yet pantheistic? <laughs> the nicest thing is that Hindus believe in one ultimate reality, whatever you want to call it. And then what happens is that the realization is that not everyone can relate to an abstract entity. Because about God, the thought is that um, omnipresent, omnipresent. So the thought simply is that that kind of entity is hard for ordinary person to understand. So there are all these deities. And these deities are the ones that manifests some qualities that uh, belong to human beings as human beings, and they can relate to those qualities, and they can relate to those deities. And through those deities, then, the thought is that you reach that ultimate reality. So there are probably more gods than we have time to talk about. (laughs) But, I mean, I think the last time I'd studied Hinduism, and I might have told you this last week at the pub, was in college my senior year in 2000, and I was a religion major. But if you ask me 18 years later, I'd say I, <laughs> I couldn't teach a course on I don't I don't really, I mean, I have no idea. I couldn't even probably teach my daughter the basics. Um, but you have, is there's like, there's three the, the different gods. Like there's the ultimate reality, as you had said. There's the creator, there's a sustainer, and then there's the destroyer. Right. Which from a Christian background, you know, there's our Holy Trinity right there. <laughs> uh, so can, uh, can you help us just make sense of those three? And I know there's different manifestations and avatars as well, yeah. but those three basic ones. <laughs> there again, uh, feeling is that uh, in Hindu thought, matter is indestructible. So we take uh, birth, we do some actions. Actions have consequences, and uh, there is causation. But in all that, you can think of these three entities, that uh, somebody created it, that's called Lord Vishnu, and uh, then somebody is the one who sustained it, and then there is one destroys it. And so after that, the cycle again begins. And similarly, the thought is, and then people can't relate to it very much, that um, uh, you have our soul and we call it Atma, that everyone's Atma uh, is related, it's the same. And that is where the other day we were talking about Hindus 
when they bow and say um, greetings to you, they fold their hands and then they bow. And the thought here is that the Hindu is saying, divinity in me is bowing to the divinity in you. That all of us are divine and all of us are supposed to do good deeds. And uh, there are times when you don't. And if you don't, you're going to have some consequences. And those consequences are the ones that are going to lead to you to another life so that you can continue to grow, continue to get better, continue to do good deeds, and eventually that will lead, lead you to liberation. So the divine is infused in all living things, all living organisms, which is why there's a respect. So t- tell us the difference here between tolerance <laughs> versus acceptance, versus respect in Hinduism, that the rest of the world could probably come on board and say, that's not a bad idea. Yeah. In Hinduism, what they really feel very strongly is that uh, the entire human race is one family. One family, but each person has got own distinct personality, and each person has got own likes and dislikes. And similarly, here also, all these different religions all these different people, that they have got unique qualities. They are individuals. They have got their own likes, dislikes, all that. But at the same time, part of a family, if one part person is sick, if one person is happy, then it has got to the entire family and people around him impact of all that. You have a tragedy in one part of the family, they all of them grieve. You enjoy something, you have got wonderful wedding, some special event, all of them feel joyful. And that is the kind of thinking that permeates Hinduism, that you are equal in sense, all of them are, and so you do not simply tolerate people. Because the thinking is that when you are tolerating people, In your own mind, you are saying, I'm superior to you. You are inferior, but I still tolerate you. And here, the Hinduism, the thought is that you don't simply tolerate, you accept everyone the same. But more than that, you respect them. And so you respect differences. You respect uh, people who are not like you, don't look like you, don't act like you don't speak like you do, and still uh, there is something in common, and that is the Atma. And all of us are interconnected in that sense, and that is really the spirit of Hinduism in that sense. This was a Captain Obvious moment for me last week, and I had this realization that in conventional Christianity and conventional Islam, and so I can speak to the first part of that, is that the reason why we have this superior complex, and it's not... uh, I'm making a generalization, okay? Is it because there is that um, conversion aspect about the afterlife, of getting this person to my side on, on my te- team Jesus, if you will? Um, and that's that's a lot of the framework I know that I grew up with, and Janelle, yeah. you grew up with as well. Uh, Mark, I, I, can't, I can't speak for you in that regard, but the two biggest world religions are the ones who are all about conversion and yet have the hardest time as you were saying here, moving from tolerance. I mean, that's hard. That's hard for a lot of people in Christianity and Islam, much less acceptance. And then to respect and to say, 
No, the divine is in you too, and it's okay <laughs> if you want to be whatever religious you know. You know that label you you know that becomes an yeah. issue in India because uh, when the missionaries come and uh, they do some very very good work, but at the same time, because the idea is that I've got to save your soul, then at times there are temptations, and there are people who are very poor, and if you go to their house and say. Well, I see that your kid is sick. Um, I can take you to a hospital. Um, and by the way, here is the Bible, and uh, you will feel very good, and Christ is going to save your kid and you. And that becomes a point of friction because Hinduism does not believe in proselytizing. And uh, when this kind of thing comes up, and poor people are tempted at times because they've got no choice. And uh, they feel that they need to convert in order to get whatever worldly needs that they have satisfied. That is where friction comes. That is where tension comes. As it should. I mean, just I come from a denomination that um, prides itself on being in hundreds of countries. And that was everything I learned as a kid growing up was the stories of missionaries and the work they were doing and reflecting back on that now as an adult and knowing that some of those things have been done by people that I was supporting by collecting my pennies in a box and memorizing their stories makes me really, really angry um, because no one should be denied any kind of help that they need because they're not willing to say the name of Jesus. And I'm sorry that that, that isn't something that you've experienced that's kind of been sent around the world from us because that's not okay at all in any way t to me now. But thank you. I'm here at the Isle School of Theology, um, which is a progressive Christian yeah. school. Um, I have served on the Board of Trustees for nine years, and I have chaired their academic council, Yeah, and I have served on their PhD dissertation committees chairing them. And, and I have realized there, um, when I, they asked me to serve on the Board of Trustees, uh, my wife, who again, just like you, came from Christianity, she is born here, uh, and her dad at one time was a part owner of the Broncos. And so <laughs> it's, a, it's a Denmark family. And um, the nicest thing is that she said to me, when they asked me to serve on the Board of Trustees, she said, not that fast. And then there was a retreat where the chair of the board and the president of the ILF, along with all those that they were trying to be on the board, mm -hmm. we were all together. And I didn't know that what she was going to do. And she just looked at him and said, do you believe in conversion? And they said, no. She said, now you can serve. <laughs> Good. And that's where I'm serving now. Yeah. You know, I had, I had also heard and, uh, about missionaries to India that oftentimes they wouldn't get traction. The missionaries would not get traction because... The Hindu religion is so, um, I don't want to say accommodating, but it 
it's accepting of other beliefs. And sometimes they would just accept the argument away. And, and, and they, they couldn't really do anything with these people because it's like, okay, well, well, we're that too. You know, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, for 800 years, Muslims ruled India. And part of that time was a pretty brutish rule where the choice was between Quran and the sword. And people were killed mercilessly and um, all over the country. And uh, temples were destroyed and mosques were built. And the uh, amazing part is that after that 800 years, Hindu identity still remained intact. Then 200 years of British rule. So a thousand years, uh, it has been a long time, but still Hindu identity is still there. And uh, what you were saying about accepting religions, and uh, the other day we were talking about it, that at the present time you still have in southern part of India, not uh, um, in many places, but still in several places, you have um, um, not simply Christians, but Jews. And the Jews came to India long time ago. And uh, there are uh, several places where they are in pretty good place. And uh, Christians came, uh, then Zoroastrians, Persians came, and then today Dalai Lama is there, Tibetans came. Everyone has been received with a great deal of uh, uh, acceptance, great deal of respect. And at that time, Hindu rajas or Hindu kings, they would give land. They would say, you build your church, you build your uh, temple different, and do whatever you want because your religion is as good as mine. Actually, uh, haven't uh, religions come to India as a refuge? Yeah. The Zoroastrians, I believe, and uh, like the Baha'i, they, they, they set up... Jews yeah. came the same way. After the Temple of Solomon was destroyed, mm -hmm. then the Jews came. And um, you have synagogues, and people have been there for centuries and lived peacefully. And uh, you have uh, Christian churches all over. And uh, they are, you know, Christmas comes and everybody rejoices. And so that kind of setting is still there. There's, I, I, there's so many places I want to go right now. Uh, okay, so let's uh, let's talk about just some misconceptions because I think that a lot of Americans have, we've probably covered some already, some misconceptions on Hinduism. What would you say would be like the, the main main three that we just need to get over and people need to be informed about? Very good. Uh, the first one I would take is caste because many times the feeling is that in Hinduism there are those the Dalits, people who are untouchables, and they have been treated not properly. And uh, that is a truth, because uh, today, even in villages, uh, what has happened is that some of those people who are not in the high caste, they are not treated properly. What happened again is that in these thousand years of foreign domination in Hin India, um, Hindus built kind of barriers around them. They closed their windows, they closed their doors, and they felt under siege. So this identity to keep intact 
They just built those ossified kind of caste systems. Initially, what caste was simply what we call varnas, and that was a division of labor. That those people who were scholars, who read a lot scriptures, and they were the ones who were talking about religion and scriptures. They were Brahmins because they were the scholars. Then the second group of people were those who were warriors and who were also uh, in the agricultural field or who were in business. The third group was the one that you had, um, um, you know, Brahmins and Kshatriyas. Uh, Kshatriyas one, they were warriors and uh, people who were doing uh, governing and ruling and uh, then agriculture and business, they were the third group. And the fourth was the unskilled people who did not have any of those um, elements with them. And these were the ones who unskilled people and they were called kind of untouchables or whatever. And, uh, but you born in, as an untouchable, you could become a Brahman by studying and by being part of that. You could become a Maharaja even if you were born a Dalit. Now, over a period of time then, um, it became kind of ossified and uh, it um, set in cement. And so if you were born as a Brahmin, uh, no matter what you did, you did not study, you were not a scholar, you still remained a Brahmin. Kshatriya born, you remain a Kshatriya. And that is really where the uh, problems came up. So when people think about caste system, a simple idea for them should be that it was never structured in a way to become hereditary. And over a period of time, it has become hereditary. Do you know the history of, of when that happened, when humans lost sight of that vision of that original caste system that seems pretty normal in any society? It is. Uh, I think it was about a thousand plus years ago. So it, over a period of time, then it became pretty structured. And uh, today, though, in most uh, cities, you don't have that feeling. We have, uh, um, in India right now, the president of India is one of those lower castes, lowest castes. He's the one who is uh, to be seen by others as untouchable. You have uh, chief justices of the Supreme Court, uh, many of my colleagues who are now deans, presidents of universities. They are, they are not Brahmins, they are not Kshatriyas. They belong to the lowest caste. So the caste system is one of those myths yeah. that has been. So you, you still see some of the, the abuse and the, the toxicity in maybe some small rural areas of India? It's but there. Yeah, it's still there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what other kind of misconceptions? I know we had talked about karma the other night, which is <laughs> something that everybody talks about. <laughs> On karma, simply it's an idea. You're not fatalistic uh, ideas. You're not the ones who are born with certain things that you cannot change. Karma simply means that whatever you do, you're going to have consequences. And you cannot avoid them. It is simply causation. And uh, that I think people need to understand that you again can change it by changing your own way of doing things and changing your conduct, changing your behavior, changing your actions, and you can change your actions. 
Um, you were talking about um, misconceptions. Um, another misconception that has been um, probably for a long time that Aryan invasion came from Europe, that part, and uh, that they were the ones who invaded India, and uh, the Aryans were, are the ones who were in the north, and they went down, and uh, that Dravidians, Dravidians, South Indians, uh, you see that they are much darker, that uh, they invaded them. And now I think uh, all those people who are sociologists and people who have been working on these uh, genes and looking back at uh, origin of people, they have come to a conclusion that that Aryan invasion is a myth. And finally, I think I would probably talk about women and the place of women in Indian society because uh, um, women in India um, in the past uh, several decades have not been treated well. Many other countries, again, equality issue is not there. Um, our University of Denver Law School, we, had, we have a colleagues who... Uh, sued the university because uh, women were not being given equal pay and uh, equal pay for equal work. That, as you know, has been um, a, an ongoing problem and challenge, not simply in this country, but in Europe and everywhere. But in India, I simply want you to know that the scriptures, when you come to the oldest Indian scriptures, Vedas, and then Upanishads, these are the ones that uh, elaborate upon the philosophy of Vedas, the ancient scriptures. You find that women, they were scholars, women were rulers, women were in business, women had equal status, and they were the ones who were treated not simply equally, but with a great deal of respect. So that's the another myth. You had said a uh, couple, three issues that... Um, might be um, bothering people, and I should at least talk about them. So those are the ones that come to mind. Yeah, that's good to clear up. Uh, I, it's it's interesting when you come from a tradition such as the one that I've come from, which is beautiful, just like yours, and yet at the same time you can see your own flaws and you can see your own these like ah oh, we we have it wrong here. Uh, what do you if you could if you could play on the other side of this uh, the negative aspects? I mean, I could talk about how bad my religion's been throughout the years. I mean, what are some things right now that you would say in Hinduism conventionally uh, that, that needs work, that needs reform? Total reform needs to be done on this caste system that I mentioned to you. Total reform at the present time needs to be done when you talk about women and their status because uh, still uh, now there is no dowry, but still for a long period of time, women have not been treated well. So I think uh, those are the two areas that I would say that the reform is needed. And in India, when people criticize India on caste system, they've got every right to criticize. Because in the rural areas, still there are people who would never want you to marry, for example, inter-caste. Today, that is happening in the cities all the time, totally. Um, and um, for example, I wear this because my mother was a sick, and um, I came from that sick family, and then 
my dad was in the Hindu family. But today, even in Hindus, uh, inter-caste marriages are very, very common. But still, that reform is needed. Similarly, about women, treatment properly, because Indira Gandhi was a woman, obviously, and was the Prime Minister of India. We have got, uh, again, um, in very high positions, women in India. But still, I think uh, the status of women, their proper treatment, that has to be taken care of. Those two things, still India suffers from that. And I think the problem probably is, again, um, the English rule, obviously there were many good things, but um, that really killed self-esteem in India. Uh, that rule, um, industrial revolution came and India was left behind. So today there's a great deal of poverty, although India is coming out of all that. But many of these ills, they also come from poverty. Yeah. One of the ways um, that caste system might have become, as you say, ossified during, uh, like, you know, the, uh, the British... No, uh, Muslim rule. During the Muslim rule? Uh, okay. Long, Muslim. long time ago. Okay, all right. Because, you know, the point simply was mm -hmm. that at time during those days, you have seen the women wearing this, right? And today it's kind of fashion. But at that time when it began, it was simply that a woman would wear this and go out so that uh, she would give an impression that she's married. So she should not be abducted by a Muslim. She should not be raped. And uh, perhaps they would leave her alone because that was the difficult period. Are women allowed to be priests in Hinduism? Yes, yes. And Today they are. They can be all the way up into the hierarchy? No, in some uh, traditional part of uh, Hinduism, they are not. Yeah, they still are not. And uh, I think uh, there is a lot that needs to be done about the women status, similarly about the caste. But uh, there is kind of rejuvenation today, uh, Sanskrit language that is uh, not like, uh, you know, Roman and Greek. Greek is there alive, but uh, Sanskrit is today coming back. And uh, Hindus are feeling a great deal of confidence. But the baggage of history yeah. is uh, still uh, there because at times Hindu-Muslim riots that happen communal issues that arise uh, that are a blot on India. And so India needs to take care of that also much more than has been done. And what about with the LGBT plus community and gay marriage? Because I, I mean, I know it's, you know, you look at America now and you can say, oh, look at us. We're so progressive. Yet that was only a few years ago. <laughs> yeah. And we're still, you know, we're, we're, <laughs> we're still trying to move forward in, in a lot of areas of our country. Uh, you have a religion that at one point had the Karma Sutra, <laughs> yes. this this book that had everything <laughs> under the sun within it. And I know you've probably taken a look at it here and there if you're around the table. And then, uh, but then it, it, there's there was conservatism that moved in and yeah. more of a puritanical. Was that was that the English rule that kind no, of no no the no? Muslim rule? Oh, the Muslim, Muslim rule. Okay, okay. Because what happened is that at one time, um, talking about the lifespan. And uh, in Hinduism, they had talked about four stages of life, that for the first 25 years, you study 
you become acquainted with all the things that you need in skills. Then you become a householder. After 50 to 75, that's the time that you start detaching yourself and doing some work for society. And 75 to 100 is the time that you work simply for society. You have got nothing to do with your own family even, and you are detached totally. Similarly, the thought was that a person, an individual, can have what they call earth, calm, the four, I won't go into Sanskrit part, but that you can, this part that you talk, Kama Sutra, in Hinduism, the thought simply was that life gives you to enjoy yourself within restraints that are there in moderation, then you've got to earn money, you are to be happy, you have senses, all of that is proper. So that is what Hinduism was. And then you're right, it became conservative. And then over a period of time, since it has been seven, eight thousand years, or some put it at 10,000, and those who don't want to go that far, say at least it's 5,000 years plus ago. So throughout that period, there are always ups and downs. But there originally was, it's liberation, it's freedom, yeah. it's wholeness, it's harmony, it's what in the Jewish <laughs> tradition, it's shalom. Yes, shalom. Yeah. And yet we get, over time, we our, our religion, Mark and I, we talked about that earlier tonight, uh, before we started recording, that you know, theology is important, <laughs> but religion can become a problem. And yet at the same time, religion is like the thing that we have to order ourselves right with. Yes. And, but, but people who are religious need to get more theological and need to get back to the roots, right? Uh, and, and the spirit of that law and that letter. You know, it's interesting. Uh, one of the legitimate ends in Hinduism is pleasure. And but it's moderated by dharma. Right, right. And so, um, how much, how, how, what, how much uh, limits does dharma put? Dharma on simply pleasure? says that each one of us has a duty. It is, it is your justice, religion, conduct, all of that woven together. Ethics. And then so, dharma simply says that you as a person, have got certain duties to do. They talk about several duties. One is a duty to your parents. Then there is a duty to your teachers. Then there is a duty and responsibility to society, people all around you. And uh, in Hindu literature, you go back and sages and seers, they say that serving a person is more important than even serving God. And then there is a saying that if there is a teacher and God, both of them standing in front of you, you touch your teacher's feet first. It is through your teacher that you have gone to be able to understand and realize and appreciate God. And similarly, the thought is, if a person comes to your house no matter who it is, and you have very little to eat, and you are hungry and you are thirsty, and the person comes and says, I'm hungry, you've got to feed him, not yourself. And so 
that kind of idea, you know, over a period of time, there have been some lapses, uh, and that has to come back. And that is where, at the present time, there is an effort to do that. Are these? Oh, oh I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Are these duties? Are they? Uh, are they described uh, in uh, in the Vedas or starting from the Vedas and then Upanishads and the thought, thought simply is, and that's where human rights issues come. That uh, in Hinduism, the thought is that you got a duty also, and duty is the one that gives you the right because. You got a duty to be truthful to somebody. When you say you must speak right, I've got a right to hear something truthful from you, then you got a duty to speak the truth. So that's the kind of thing that Hinduism at least says. And that so I think as you look at religions, and I did uh, just like you, comparative religions, and looked at them, and there's so much in common in terms of all that good deeds and, you know, Ten Commandments and all that. Well, it sounds like you're describing do unto others yes. as you would have them do unto you. Exactly right. And then so the, similarly, in many instances, I looked at uh, Hinduism and looked at all these other traditions. What has it that happened in the past in history is that over a period of time, there are always some issues that come up, challenges that come up, and then reformers come. Because Buddhism grew out of Hinduism just as a reform movement. Sikhism grew out of Hinduism just as a reform movement. And so these reform movements, Jainism came. So all these kind of Indic religions, Dharma traditions, uh, Hinduism, Jainism, Sikhism, Buddhism, uh, they are all part of that tradition of duties to society and others. They're all dharmic. And all dharmic traditions. I don't know. It, uh, it just sounds like in the world that we're finding ourselves in right now, we could use a return to a healthy understanding of duty, of what it means to care for and be compassionate for others. As you're um, out doing the work you do, clearly from your CV, what are some messages that you're sharing right now with the world as we're confronting this burst of tyranny and fascism that's kind of growing around us? Two things come to mind. One is that as we are seeking some kind of global harmony and peace, then I think the ideas, whether it's from Hinduism or other religions, again, the idea that it's not simply tolerance, but respect, acceptance, of all these different traditions. And that is where, for the first time, the realization has grown that religion, although it has been responsible for nothing else in many, many instances, death and destruction around the world. But that religion also can be an instrument of peace. And that is the effort that at the present time is being made. When you look at all these suicide bombers and you look at these people who have got, as you rightly said, no compassion, but simply brutality, then I think to them that message needs to go. And that message is from Hinduism, but I'm sure from all the other traditions that we need to live peacefully as human beings. And as Hinduism says that we are all one family and that we are to have kind of respect for other religions and be have that kind of relationship with them, 
and to feel that kind of interconnectedness. And if we have that interconnectedness feeling, then we obviously can live in peace with one another. Ryan, I uh, want to thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to share my thoughts with you, and you have been wonderful. The other day when you introduced the topic and when you were talking about it from the very beginning, I felt uh, a stir in that group, and I felt that you related to them very, very appropriately and closely to them. And I want to thank you for doing what you are doing, because um, what I read about you and read about the um, what you are doing, this uh, uh, effort, uh, I wish you all success, and uh, you're doing it for a wonderful cause. So I want to thank you very much for permitting me to come and sharing my thoughts, but also uh, your openness, your desire to look at other things, and that open-mindedness is the one that Janelle was saying is needed and marks it. So thank you very much. Very thank, thank, thank you. Uh, last question for you. Anything that you're working on right now that you're excited about, that you're passionate about? Because, I mean, it's, you, you've, you've done, part of me is like, what else can you do? You've done so much. <laughs> yeah. I'm working on several things. One is um, just um, this um, uh, global peace issues and fighting against uh, what people had done in genocide and uh, during the Second World War, that dis death and destruction, and the way people had done that. So I've been working with the uh, several groups on uh, global peace issues. So that is the primary thing in my mind. And second is that uh, what uh, appeals to me much more than anything else is human rights, human values, human dignity. And um, when I teach that, I have this year for example, about 24, 25 from the law school. I take a PhD in law students from the Corbell School of International Studies. I permit one or two students from ILF and DU who are doing PhD together and a couple uh, MBA students. And so it's wonderful. And uh, it uh, meets in law school on Wednesdays from 2.45 to 5.30. Anybody who wants to come you are my guest, and just come one day and see what happens in the class and how we deal with human rights issues. Awesome. Sounds great. Thanks. Well, uh, thank you all for listening. If you like this episode, here's what you can do. Go to iTunes, rate it, review it, share it online. We are at Brew Theology on Facebook and Instagram, also Brew underscore on Twitter. Thank you again, Ved, for your time. Well, thank and you very much. share that brew online, people. And I don't even know if I told Ryan this yet. If you live in the Raleigh-Durham area, I have heard that a Twitter handle has been acquired and Brew Theology will be coming to a brewery near you very soon. Wonderful. Cheers. 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 Cheers.